Is that what I'm saying? Rough Trade Radio. 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 How's that? Hello and welcome to this special, I suppose, edition of Rough Trade Radio. I am joined here today by David Hepworth. Hello. Hello. And you are in Rough Trade today to tell us about your amazing new book, Uncommon People. We've got a big display in the front of the shop, which um, has lots of copies on it. I've had lots of people looking at it, talking about it. It is the rise and fall of the rock stars. Um, and I suppose what I wanted to do a bit before we go, start talking about the book is to put you in context right. and talk a little bit about your past, because you have had something of an incredible career in, in the world of music. Um, I guess, are you a musician at all as well? No, not at all. Not guilty. And I never really, no, three chords on a guitar, grade one piano, nothing further than that. Uh, I I trained as a teacher. Yeah. So I'm a qualified teacher. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> But I didn't want to do that. I ended up working in a very big record shop in the West End of London in the mid-70s. Wow. And uh, at the same time, kind of desperately trying to get my foot in the door, freelancing for the enemy. Which you then did. Which I eventually did. Then I worked for a small independent record label, the American label Berserkly, yeah. home of Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers. Great. And so forth, which was very educational. And then I jacked that in and I thought, I'm going to attempt to make a living as, as a kind of writer. And I was very fortunate because I was desperately looking for work. Somebody said, Nick Logan is looking for help. He's just started this magazine called Smash Hits. Call Nick. So I called Nick. And Nick pretty much says, when can you be here? You know, Brilliant. And uh, so I ended up with a job at Smash Hits. And then at the same time, I was doing kind of broadcasting on the side and was eventually one of the uh, presenters of what was not called Old Grey Whistle Test at that time. At that time, it's called Whistle Test. So I did that for a few years, which is tends to be what people know you for. Yeah, I mean that's incredible. It's, it's not what you do, you know. But what fantastic <laughs> things to be part of! Smash Hits is is iconic. Old Grey Whistle Test iconic. These are all just like huge well, parts hit. of. I'm very fortunate with Smash Hits because I was saying this to somebody the other night. You can go anywhere in the world. You're if you're addressing a room full of 500 people, you know, you yeah. go, is there anybody in this room who used to read Smash Hits? <laughs> I guarantee you. <laughs> There will be somebody. So I you know, worked in magazines and then launched loads of other magazines and launched Q and Mojo. And yeah, just, just the small ones, just the small ones. <laughs> well, small, small ones now. And, yeah, well. And, uh, yeah, and, and did that. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, a few years ago I was approached by an agent to write a book about Bob Dylan. And I said, I can't add anything to what's been written about no. Bob Dylan, but I'd like to write a book about 1971. And ah. so... They said, okay, and that's about how I came to run my first book, Never a Dull Moment, 1971, and then which had led to this new one. I mean, 1971 was quite a year, wasn't it? It was. I would say, you know, that if you, if they had the Mercury Music Prize in 1971, which is competed for by UK albums, isn't it? The shortlist would have been, let's see if I can remember it, uh, Rod Stewart's Every Picture's Old Story. David Bowie's Hunky Dory. Oh, my goodness. Who's Next? Rolling Stone's Sticky Fingers. <laughs> John Lennon's Imagine. Led Zeppelin 4. You know, Nick Drake's Prior to Later. 
John Martin, bless the weather. You know, it was just it was just an absolutely extraordinary year, and that's just the UK stuff. And imagine that awards ceremony, all of them partying together. <laughs> what an evening! <laughs> well, yeah, I suppose so. I suppose so. They wanted... didn't have award ceremonies in those days. I no. Um, I wanted to ask you, as I make a magazine for Rough Trade. How did you used to make music magazines without the internet and emails? That is all I want to know. <laughs> without emails? Well, that's a good question. You used to get packages all the time, you know. You get things from sent from PRs. You got bits of paper in there, cardboard envelopes. But it was a very um it was a very kind of craft business in those days. Because I was I was talking to Nick Logan the other day. It was you know he was the guy who gave me the job of Smash Hits. And Nick subsequently started the face and so forth. And we were reminiscing just about how it was a business. Uh, it was about glue and tape yeah. and letter sets and things you could hold in your hand and things that got stuck onto the bottom of your feet. Yeah. You know, it was not on a screen. It was a completely physical thing. And, uh, and when the designer wanted to draw up the front cover of Smash Hits, they'd get the transparency, tiny little 35 mil transparency, pop it in a slide projector, point it at the wall on which there would be a large sheet with the, the logo of Smash Hits, and then he'd kind of move it back and forth to resize the image, then draw around it, and then send the, that instruction plus the transparency to the you know, compositor and said, do it like this. Amazing. And then there was an awful lot of back and forth. And in those days... Sorry, I won't use the expression in those days anymore. But, <laughs> Don't mind. you know, in the mid-80s, you know, it used to be all done in Peterborough and the, and the editorial office was in London. And the, the only contact between the two was a, was a retired printer called Len who used to take the train from Peterborough every afternoon with a large portfolio of all the proofs he'd bring back and then he'd sit in the office for two hours and take away the new ones. There was clearly no email. There was there was not even at that point. There was a thing called Red Star, which was a fast parcel delivery, which came in later. Uh, but you know, all those all those simple bits of communication were very difficult to do. Mind you, the odd thing it. is, we have all this technology, and it hasn't made anything move any faster. No, I know. All it does is just facilitate more processes. It allows you to fuss more. Yes. It doesn't make anything more effective. No. You know, newspapers and magazines still come still take roughly the same amount of time to come out. That's what I can't get my head did. around is just that process and how if you're making a weekly or a daily or even a monthly with that without the internet and without these Photoshop and without all the tools that we have now. I just I just boggles my mind. No, well it, it is it is not made it any faster. That's fine. that's my message to you. And the next bit of technology won't make it any faster either. No. It'll just introduce more technology. Whatever that may be. I'm sure you had lots more phone calls than we have these days. I kind of miss phone calls. I quite oh, like yes. them. Well, officers, I'll tell you what, Mark Allen and I, uh, Mark Allen, I think you've probably had on this podcast in the past, uh, we often reminisce about what noisy places magazines yeah. were. You'd go in there, and there was a clack of typewriters, and they, you know, people would get to the end and push back the, you know, the carriage return, and it would go ding, you know, and all that. And there were records playing in the background because. Because it wasn't a load of people with their own headphones in their own yeah. computer, in their own world. And also, in Smash Hits particularly, you know, we had a very very kind of extrovert bunch of people. You know, we had kind of Ian Birch and Steve Bush and Neil Tennant to the Pet Shop Boys who worked there. You know, so it was a kind of performance <laughs> space. You know, people would come in every morning with... 
here's what I did last night, and I will just I'll tell you this story for 15 minutes. <laughs> so a lot of that stuff found its way into the magazine. We always used to say to people, and said the same thing on Q, actually, on a mojo, that when journalists came back from meeting whoever it was, yeah. Keith Richards, or Johnny Rotten, or whatever, they'd come in the office and you go, go and tell me about it. And they'd say, well, he was, he was 10 minutes late. He was wearing a so-and-so. He was, you know. Yeah. Well, he had this book in his pocket. I would have, and we'd always say, that is the story. Yeah, It's the sure. stuff you tell people. Not the, not what you process. Yeah. It's the stuff that, that if you went home and spoke to your husband or wife or whatever, that's what you would tell them. Yeah. That's the stuff. They order a weird egg sandwich or something. Absolutely. It's, it's, all that, it's the nice stuff. That's yeah. the interesting stuff. Yeah, Because that's what humans are interested in, you know. Yeah. And particularly with, with, you know, with rock stars, which I've kind of written about in this book, a lot of it is just, a lot of the appeal of rock stars is just kind of watching them. Yeah. Just being around them. Yeah. It's watching how they behave. It's not even how they play music or anything like that, you know. Yeah, there is a fascination in the things they do, you know, like what do they eat for breakfast or you know, uh, where do they buy their bed sheets or oh, what absolutely. do they wear pajamas? They're not wear pajamas. It's all that those little things. <laughs> well, that... Neil Tennant uh, pioneered the, the the question on Smash Hits: Does your mother play golf? <laughs> because <laughs> if somebody answered yes or no, you always got some kind of social reading yeah. of what their kind of background was. Of course. That's one of the things we're really interested in about rock stars. Even though people deny it like crazy, we're really interested in their background. Yeah, uh, and I think that's why people go and sort of stalk celebrities and look through their windows and just to have a look at what kind of normal lives they lead. Yeah, if, how, if yeah, they do. yeah that kind of extravagant normal life. How is it like my normal life? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, how does it compare and contrast? Like when that journalist um, went into Buckingham Palace undercover and discovered that the Queen uses uh, plastic... <laughs> Tupperware. Classic Tupperware for her cereal. Tupperware. <laughs> and that was the, that was the biggest we thing that all, came out of it. We were all immensely comforted. <laughs> you know, it's, it's one of those things, one of the very few things people know about the Queen, that she has a, you know, Weetabix and a Tupperware. No, muesli, I think it was. Yeah, I think muesli. it was muesli. <laughs> I think it was muesli. Um, I was wondering as well, do you um, read any music magazines now or any magazines at all? <laughs> yes, I do. I read, uh, I read, I tend to read weeklies. You know, I find I tend to read kind of very quite dense, copy-heavy weeklies. I read the New Yorker, I read the Economist, you know, mm. uh, New Statesman, Spectator, that kind of thing. Yeah, I don't read any music magazines. No, because what I want to know, I kind of I kind of find out myself. You know that you, you used to, you used to need. You know, I often tell this story. I worked it worked in the mid seventies for a record company, as I said. Yeah. And when you had tour dates for the any of the acts, you would go down to IPC magazines at King's Reach Tower near Waterloo. And you'd go up there and you'd you'd meet Derek Johnson, who was the news editor. Yeah. And you'd give Derek the tour dates on the Thursday or whatever. And he would type them up on the Friday, put them in the paper on the Monday, go to the printers on the Tuesday, check the proofs on the Wednesday, and it would come out on Thursday. So it's a week has gone by yeah. between that information you know, being handed to him and it coming out. And there was no chance of it ever coming out any other way because it couldn't leak. Radio wasn't interested. There was no internet, you know what I mean? There's no direct-to-fan contact. Yeah. So, you know, that's when the music papers, you know, they 
did so well when they were the only conduit for inter- information. Exactly. Nowadays, you can get information absolutely. You can't escape information. Yeah, and if you live in the arse end of nowhere in some village, you, make any you, you need that. You needed the enemy to come to your door every week because you, you would need- just. It needs that you need that information. Absolutely, yeah, yeah definitely. No, it's scary. And uh, you know, the, the that was the excitement of, you know, going to. There used to be a, a news agent on uh, down and down the concourse of Oxford Circus Station. They used to get the enemy a day before anyone else. <gasps> oh, really? Can't imagine how exciting that was. <laughs> Honestly, and when they used to go on strike, which was quite often, people would be in a terrible mood. Months. I can't, can't imagine. Once without the months without the enemy, because that was the only thing. So you know, the excitement around music grew in direct proportion, or in inverse proportion, to the the difficulty of getting it. I can't believe they went on strike as well. That just seems so. Oh, well, they were, they were, printers were always on strike. You know? Yeah, yeah. Of Distributors course. were always on strike. There was always something. Yeah, <laughs> always something. Always something going on. I wanted to ask you as well, what do you think, just one more magazine question just for me, um, what do you think is the key to being a, a good magazine editor or to create a good magazine? What does it need? I suppose, gosh, what's it need? You've got storytelling ability. <laughs> you know, it's, it's storytelling. That's what it is, mm. you know, and, it's, and the story isn't just in the words. You know, the story is in the, is in the combination of the words and the images and, and the layout and everything you put together. You know, that's... That's what it is. Yeah. Um, it's creating a vibe kind of thing. Yeah, but it's, I think also, you know, well, it's having an idea at the outset. This is how it's going to be. This is what it's going to look like. It's going to be really dramatic. It's going to start like this. It's going to change into that and so forth. And uh, the best magazines tend to be the ones that just they just have very definite definite idea, very definite approach to story, storytelling yeah. and a great confidence in it. Yeah, confidence, that's the key, isn't it? As with most things. Um, right, well, we better start talking about the book because that's what we're here for today is your wonderful new book. Talk Uncommon about what you People. like, we go on. I mean, I was going to, when I was having a look at this earlier, I was thinking that with regards to your career in music, you must have met a lot of the people you featured in this book and has has meeting them or being fans of their music kind of swayed what you've written in this? Uh, well, there's always a certain amount of subjectivity. You know, it's basically I've taken, you know, it, it, it's... It's the rise and fall of the rock stars, 1955 to 1995, because I think musical eras tend to be 40-year patches. You know, they just they just do. I think if you look at jazz, you find the same thing. And uh, and so, you know, I wanted to, to write about how they arrived and how they, they kind of bloomed and then they got huge and then they got too big and then they kind of faded away because I think I think their moment went. And uh, And so I've chosen people who I've felt exemplified various different characteristics of of what we came to call a rock star because i don't think a rock star is just it's not what the sunday times fashion section thinks of a rock star it's not leather trousers no. it's not jim morrison jim morrison is part of it and jim morrison isn't here but it's also ian dury yeah and buddy holly yeah stevie all, nicks or uh, stevie yeah. nicks it's all kinds of odd people yeah. who somehow had and it's about stardom, you know, it's about rock stars rather than about rock music because it's it's about that curious, you know, it's the the interplay between the music and the personality Yeah, is, is what's interesting and is what, you know, engenders these relationships between us and them that then go on to last so long. And that's the yeah. amazing thing because, you know, I can remember a world without Paul McCartney 
Wow. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and I can remember. I'll tell you a story. Uh, Christmas 1964, four, I think, or three, it might be three, my Uncle Stan came to see us at Christmas. My Uncle Stan was a bit of a sophisticated. He was a Frank Sinatra fan. He used to wear, he used to wear cardigans with suede on the front. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, well, you know, taking the mickey out of a 13-year-old boy as I was at the time. What's this Beatles stuff? He said, I'll come back next year and you'll have forgotten about this. You'll have totally forgotten. And then the poor soul, Uncle Stan, had to come back every Christmas throughout the 60s <laughs> to find that they hadn't gone away. They've been growing at a spectacular rate. <laughs> and Uncle Stan's long been long in the ground and still, you know what I mean, <laughs> the, the star of the Beatles is 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 extraordinarily high. You know, so it does interest me that we have these very long relationships with these people. Yeah. So we kind of we kind of measure our lives against theirs. We can't help doing it, you know. And uh, yeah, so a lot of them, are, you know, a lot of them are met. Certain ones I had never met, Buddy Holly and so forth, obviously. Uh, but uh, you know, so I've written. There's a certain amount of personal encounter in there. There's Bob Dylan and uh, Bruce Springsteen and Bob Marley and, and you know, and, and Paul McCartney and so forth. And then there's other people I, I haven't met, but, uh, but have, have merely, uh, you know, observed as, a close, uh, a clo- as close a quarters as I possibly can. I think um, what ties together the people that you've selected here, and I've, I've, I've got the, a kind of a list here, um, and I think it's quite a, a comforting thing, is that the icons that truly stay with us, sort of John Lennon or, or Bob Dylan or Jimi Hendrix, I really do feel that they are... They're geniuses and they are so intelligent. And I, I like to think that it's their intelligence that makes them this star quality or like stuff that Bowie would say. Bowie or Bowie, I don't know what you say, but um, no, what do no, you say? I don't, <laughs> I don't think it's a correct answer because it is an assumed name anyway, isn't it? Because it wasn't even his. You yeah. know? So let's be fair. Yeah. Jim Bowie, how did he say it? That's where he got it from. <laughs> um, but yeah, do you think that is part of it? Is this Were kind they all of... intelligent? I mean, I think... There's different forms of intelligence, aren't there, really? Um, I think they, they've got a very firm, firm sense of themselves, mm. <laughs> I think, and they, they manage to pour their personality into their music in a way that we've, we found very appealing. You know, intelligence, I'm, I'm never quite sure about intelligence because, actually, I think the ultimate rock star, and I thought about this long and hard, is Buddy Holly. And I don't think there's any indication that Buddy Holly was wildly intelligent or anything like that. But no, Buddy, Holly, Buddy Holly just seemed to represent something. Yeah. He was the first kind of rock star that blokes really liked because they, they didn't feel threatened by him at all. Yeah. And they looked at Buddy Holly and they thought, if he can do it, I can do it. Yeah. Because he was not a glamorous figure, you know, his glasses and so forth. Was he a sex symbol for women at that no, time? Not no, not particularly. No, at he was all. just kind of. It, okay. people, people liked him. You know, they, they liked his yeah. songs. He wrote songs about his own experience. Mm-hmm. He had a group made up of his mates, and and you could kind of see what he did. So he was hugely influential for people like Bob Dylan and mm. John Lennon and John Fogerty at Queen's Revival, all of whom looked at him and thought, "I can do that." Yeah, I can see those chords he's playing on that guitar. He's, you know, it, 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 he's written that song. He's written Peggy Sue himself yeah. about his former girlfriend. I could, I could do that. And so I think he very much set the kind of template that was followed, oddly enough, even by Kurt Cobain. Yeah. was coming from the same 
the same template. Do you know what I mean? That is, it's a kind of do-it-yourself music. Yeah, of but course. it was supposed to be kind of self-expression. So, intelligence. I'm never. I mean, I don't know. I think a lot of them are, are, are kind of absurdly pretentious, but kind of get away with it. That's the thing. Yeah, because I was reading this. This book. It's a small book, and it's a published interview by John of John Lennon with John Lennon. Um, and it's just the stuff he's saying about the world is so. His kind of philosophy on the world and his outlook on the world is just, is just so mind blowing, and and I think you know people like Bowie is the same, and yeah, as you say, Kurt Cobain, like maybe his views on the world, it's it's kind of having this this amazing view and being able to summarize succinctly how they felt about themselves and the world they live. Yeah, they're in. good phrase makers. The uh, there's a guy called Michael Braun, he's no longer with us, uh, but he wrote, I think he wrote the first book about the Beatles, a book called My, a Love Me Do, came out in 1964. Yeah. So. American journalist, and he just spent time with them during Beatlemania. And he said, you know, he quite liked the music and so forth, you know, and he was very impressed with the hysteria and all that. Mm. He said, but ultimately, they're a new kind of people. And I thought it was a really interesting point. Wow, yeah. They represented a new sort of person. They were, they were kind of, they didn't come from the South for a start. They were intelligent, but they weren't educated. Yeah. They were... They were very casual. They were funny. They were slightly sarcastic. Yeah. They were affectionate. They, you know, and this is what I keep coming back to. It's the way they carry themselves is the thing that excites us. Yeah. And so Bob Dylan, you know, comes. Bob Dylan is this kind of, frankly, slightly fat kid who's a, you know, storekeeper's son from, you know, the the frozen north, and he he arrives in New York in 1961. And he announces that he's <laughs> pretty much been born in a trunk in a travelling show and that he's run away with a rodeo, you know, and that yeah. he, was, he was taught how to play blues guitar by some black man in Mississippi. All completely <laughs> fictitious, <laughs> utterly made up. But, you know, he, he, he could present it really, you know, convincingly. Yeah. And so that's 1961. I go to see Bob Dylan at the Alba Hall a couple of years ago and I'm in row two. Which is a fantastic opportunity to just watch him. And so I'm thinking to myself, I'm watching with close quarters 50 years later. Yeah. Do I know anything more about Bob Dylan now than I did then? No, not really. And that's his genius. That's extraordinary, his, isn't it? His yeah. mystique is, is yeah. what keeps us guessing. Does anybody know what's going on in Bob Dylan's head? No. I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, and, and we've all got these tons of records by him and read his books and stuff. So, do we know? Oh, I don't think we do at all. It's true, isn't it's, it? It's an act. It's a brilliant act. It's an absolutely, you know, absorbing act. And David Bowie had a very absorbing act. And it, yeah. was, it was very similar. And he was, as you say, a new kind of person when he just blew up in, on everyone's TV screens. And well, he also, kind he of... then turned into, well, David Bowie turned into many d new kinds of people. Mm. You know, and that, that's, that's what people, that's what, I mean, the music, the music was sometimes good, sometimes less good. But, you know, it, it was always, it was always a gripping idea of a person. Yeah. And, uh, and that's what people warmed to. It's fascinating, isn't it? I think I was at that same Bob Dylan show. It was great. He was, uh, he was happy and dancing, wasn't he? Oh, no, well, I don't know. Was he dancing at this one? Well, I, he was just kind of moving his hips a bit. I was quite surprised. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's extravagant dancing for Bob. <laughs> I've got this list here, which is from, I suppose, I guess the press release of the book, and it's almost a timeline, and it starts September the 14th, 1955. Little Richard becomes the first rock star, and it's a huge list of dates here that go all the way to well, 1995. I've, I've done... I've done 
about I've written about one person on one day in each of those years. It's so amazing. That's, that's the idea. It really does just kind of put it all into to know. Just all well, I, I hope the idea is then reading it. It'd be a little, little bit like looking at a flick book where you see the figure of a rock star change over the years. Do you yeah. see what I mean? Yeah. To, because that's what I wanted to get away from. I wanted to get away from the idea that there's a classic rock star. Yeah. There isn't really. You know what I mean? There's, there's loads of different kinds of rock stars. You know, it contains multitudes. You know, the, the idea of a rock star. Yeah, It's everybody from Little Richard to Buddy Holly to Hank Marvin to yeah. Stevie Nicks. To Madonna, you know. And, you know, there's Black Sabbath in here. There's Ian Jury, as you mentioned before, Spinal Tap. <laughs> I wanted to do Spinal Tap because that's the point at which Rockstar starts becoming a joke. Which is September the 31st, 1983. <laughs> yes, there you go. Joke for your kids. They, you know, that, that, uh, that's, that's when the idea of Rockstars being faintly absurd yeah. first starts to come in. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because believe it or not, during the... During many of the years of the rock stars, nobody talked about rock stars. Nobody talked about rock stars in the 60s. Didn't exist, really, as an idea. Really? No. They were pop stars. They were whatever, you know. Yeah. They were teen idols. They were, And then you got progressive music and all that stuff. Rock star is an idea that starts that is invented in retrospect, really. Yeah. It's invented in the 80s to describe that, that breed that have already occurred. Right, so of course. It starts becoming rather cliched. And so it's now got to the point where the, here's what I advise you to do. Anybody listening to this has got a bit of time on their hands. Go, go Google the expression like a rock star, okay, and, <laughs> and see if you can find the most absurd thing that's likened to a rock star. <laughs> I've, the other day I found something called so like a rock star, as in dressmaking. You, know, you can find <laughs> cook like a rock star. You know, people talk about rock star politicians, rock star sportsmen, rock star doctors. You know, you, the, 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 it's a it's an expression they yeah. use to indicate indicate a way of doing things. Yeah, and and that idea has grown, it seems to me, as the actual tribe of rock stars has kind of gone away. Yeah, because they've been superseded by hip hop and you know the the, the very various music that we have nowadays, whereas. Through most of the period of the rock stars, they were the leading entertainers. They were the leading musical entertainers, and everybody knew who they were. Yeah. Whereas I think you'd be a big star nowadays, and, and a lot of people don't know who you are, to, uh, are at all. Yes, perhaps that's true. There's so many of them. And, yeah. Yeah. and you can live in your own little silo of music nowadays. Yeah. You don't have Top of the Pops. Or, you know. Yeah, it's not a shared. <laughs> it's not a shared experience. It's, there's no... I don't think anybody's going to be looking back at the year 2016 going, where were you when? Because oh, God, don't say that. I feel like my, well, I'm 28. I feel like I've had a bit of a bum deal on the whole uh, well, lack no, of icons in no, my you, well, you, I mean, You've got loads of other things and they're great conversations. But I, I don't think shared, I don't think you have shared moments in the same way. No. Because social media has, has superseded them really, hasn't it? Yeah. I don't know. You know, where were you when you first heard, I don't know, Amy Winehouse dying? I don't know. Yeah, that actually Social is, media, yeah. probably. So yeah. it'll depend when you put your phone on. Yeah. It's not It's not. I turned on the television and, and we all, you know, found out at once. Doesn't I work do, Yeah, I do wonder also which, which stars of the last 15, 20 years um, will go on to be the ones 
in 60 years' time that have documentaries made about them or have kind of festivals dedicated to them or, or books I don't know. written it's about diff- them? It's difficult to say, isn't it, in lots of ways, because, you know, if you take somebody like Amy Winehouse, you know, she's... She, it's very sad and she's not been dead that long mm. but there's already been big film yeah did you so, see it no so but you know what's what's left to tell yeah you know you're not going to wait 40 years and then find some kind of you know unissued tapes I don't think and all the artists the other artists they don't live in the same mystique that the Rolling Stones had when they were living in the in the chateau well, in France and that no one actually knows what they're up to because nobody knew no because, but now they'd be Instagramming it and, and well you see my, one of my theories is that is you can't be a rock star in in this day and age because social media makes it impossible because you'd have to apologise all the time and anybody famous nowadays who mm. does anything on social media either they don't do anything on social media or they apologise all the time so you know, yeah. whatever I said, whatever I said last week, I didn't mean to. You know what I mean? Now, can you imagine Robert Plant or Mick Jagger or David Bowie? You know, I'm very sorry if I've been misunderstood. I use an unfortunate expression there. I shouldn't. Have, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's the whole notion is you know, it's never apologise, never explain. You yeah. Know, and that was their great strength. Well, you, it's very difficult to do that now. I was watching um, that uh, the Oasis documentary, Supersonic. And there's a bit where before they had got big, they were in a ferry on the way over to Amsterdam, I think, and just to play a gig. And basically they got caught fighting on the ferry and were kicked off and arrested. And their manager at the time was just like absolutely brilliant because he, he knew that, yeah. that would just launch their yeah, career, yeah. which it did. Because yeah, yeah. everyone was like, who are they? And, you know, it kind of yeah. spurs on from there. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask you um, in the book, who was, who was the person that you enjoyed researching and sort of studying and writing about most? Well, there's loads of different people for different reasons. As I've said, Buddy Holly, I, you know, I, I came out of it with new kind of new recognition of what Buddy Holly, you know, meant and still means. I love writing about Ian Stewart out of the Rolling Stones because Ian Stewart was a founder member of the Rolling Stones who got thrown out of the group for the simple reason they didn't look right. Oh, God. You know. Brutal. Now, it's a brutal. It's brutal, but it's true. And it was it yeah. was the right decision. And if you go and look for a picture of Ian Stewart with the Rolling Stones, you'll see that his face literally doesn't fit. He had quite a big jaw. And whereas the Rolling Stones just, even though they didn't all look alike, they looked like a picture. They do, they, yeah. They kind of fitted They're together. They're all very beautiful in their own way. Very, very striking. Yes, very striking. And uh, Andrew Oldham, was their manager, already thought that they were pushing it by having five members. So he certainly didn't want six. And so he said, Ian can stay with the group. He can drive the van because it was his van. <laughs> And he can play the piano as long as he stays behind the curtain. Oh, God. Was so, that so awkward? I was, I was just really interested in the idea of, of, you know, somebody who doesn't fit in. Yeah. Uh, and there's some people who never be a rock star as long as they live. And then the oddest people become rock stars. And so, you know, Ian Dury, I've, I've a great interest in Ian Dury. You know, I met him quite a few times. And uh, and he's just an extraordinary example of, of the... Of, ha- of some people who can become rock stars while mm. appearing to be the most unpromising clay. And uh, and then, you know, Bruce Springsteen, uh, I've, I've got a lot of time for Bruce Springsteen because I think he kind of, um, he went into it knowing the great responsibilities he felt 
in being a rock star. Yeah. And he kind of lived up to them. The same responsibilities, I think, destroyed Kurt Cobain because he just felt he couldn't live up to it. Yeah. He couldn't live up to what people, what he felt people expected a, a rock star. Yeah. And I think the people who deal with it are the people that they've, they've kind of got a thick skin. You know, they can they they can keep a kind of professional distance. They don't get overwhelmed by it. It's they that want... acceptance, isn't it? As you say, Bruce has accepted his destiny and he has to just roll he understands, with it. Yeah. He understands what he's there to do. Yeah. Um, and he's immensely professional and uh, yeah, works at it very hard. But I mean, people, people also but other people who understand what, the, what they have to do, people like Paul McCartney. <laughs> I was once sitting in a... Uh, in a uh, Pizza Express in Dean Street. Yeah. And Paul McCartney's office is around the corner from there in Soho Square. And uh, that that is a corner restaurant, big windows. And uh, Paul McCartney goes past, you know, comes down Dean Street, turns left. And the pretty much the whole restaurant just stops and looks. <laughs> well, you would, wouldn't you? Yeah, of course. They just stop and they all look. And he just, he <laughs> waved going around like the Queen. I thought, <laughs> And I thought, that's a man who understands his responsibility. Yeah. That's a man who knows what... giving the people what they want. It's giving them... <laughs> yeah, that's your job. You know, you can't hide from it, you uh, know. And that's everyone who's eating pizza that day. That's going to be... That's the day that Paul McCartney waved at us. They all gonna, they're all going to go home and yeah. they're all going to tell a hundred people. Yeah. And I'm telling you now. You know what I mean? Yeah. So... And he understood that you can't hide from that, you know. He seems to have a very sweet nature as well. He seems to be, he's, he's happy, he's friendly. He seems it anyway. Hey, well, he's, uh, well, he's Paul McCartney. He's, he, you know, he's like all these guys. He's kind of tough underneath. You know? Yeah, no, I but, bet. Uh, but what Paul McCartney always says, if he's walking around Soho, which he does, is never stop. Just keep moving. Oh, so, so he's, hello, hello, carry hello, waving. Hello, oh, Thumbs up, all that stuff. <laughs> Just stop. If he's going to give an autograph, he'll be on the move as he's doing it. Because if you stop, everyone else comes. Yeah, yeah, and you can't get anywhere at all. You know, so he's he's very wise to do that. Anyone famous listening? That's a top tip from Paul McCartney for when you're next in Soho. (laughs) If you need if you need a tip like that, you'll never be famous. (laughs) Um, I wonder if you would mind. I guess we're kind of going to run out of time, so I'm going to ask you to read a little bit from the book. That's all right. Um, I'll give you some time to pick one. And then I'm going to ask you to play a song. Um, that relates to the book in some way. Well, I'll just read this bit from the end of the chapter about Bruce Springsteen. That sounds good, yeah. In, in, in 1974. Um, and it's, a, it's, about, it's about when he finished Born to Run, the single, which he actually finished about, you know, about a year before the record came out. They were getting rather ahead of themselves. Born to Run was the record that justified John Landau's review. Now Springsteen had to live up to the record. When the album came out, Springsteen was famously on the cover of both Time and Newsweek. This was unheard of for a relative unknown. At the time, the so-called straight press was only just getting comfortable with the idea of featuring the people who played loud music. They preferred to cover their story as a cultural phenomenon. The cover line on Time promised a look at the making of a rock star. That was how it was. It was a process rather than some magical accident. So that's what he was now, a rock star. He found the attention terrifying because he knew what he expected a rock star to be. He didn't see playing the rock star as an art project. He saw it as something more like a sacred duty. He wanted to build on what he'd seen in Roy Orbison, the Beatles, Bob Dylan, 
and Creedence Clearwater Revival. He wanted to be able to tell the whole story. He wanted an act that encompassed politics as well as romance, drama as well as dancing, sermons as well as sex. His vision of a rock star stood on the shoulders of all the rock stars that had gone before. Springsteen was sitting around the pool at the Sunset Marquee in Hollywood when he first saw those magazine covers. It was 20 years since Tutti Frutti, 20 years since Little Richard had invented being a rock star, and now the responsibilities of the role seemed heavier. Years later, he recalled his feelings that day. I was just going to have to be good enough, as good as I promised, as good as I thought I was, for all this to make sense. It's Bruce Springsteen and Born to Run. Beyond the palace, any bar drone screamed down the door. 
was Bruce Springsteen and Born to Run, of course. Um, and yes, thank you, David Hepworth, for coming in today. And your amazing new book, which I cannot wait to read, Uncommon People, The Rise and Fall of the Rock Stars, is available now. And you can buy it in Rough Trade or lots of other shops. And I suppose you'll be doing lots of press around this as well. And I'm sure there's going to be lots of interviews with David about that. So, yeah, thank you for coming in today. Thanks for having me. Rough Trade Radio. I hope the wind will carry you back to the store. Karen Elson, Double Roses. Available in store and online at roughtrade.com. Reviews and subscriptions help to support what we do. So if you like what you hear, then please rate us on iTunes.